Hear this on Eye on the Triangle. Your local music news. This week in news on Eye on the Triangle. A brief rundown of the latest news. Good evening and thank you for tuning in to Eye on the Triangle. I'm Evan Garris. And I'm Jack Boyer. Here are today's headlines. The New York Times is reporting that Iran has conducted test firings of medium to long range missiles capable of striking targets in Europe and Israel, along with American military bases in the Persian Gulf. This latest development comes after tensions between Iran and the West have increased due to test firings of numerous short range missiles on Sunday and the discovery of a secret uranium enrichment facility near the holy city of Qum. These tests are not the first to be reported, but come only days after details of the hidden facility were disclosed. Revolutionary Guard official Abdullah Araki was quoted as saying that Iranian missiles are capable of targeting any place that threatens Iran. Iranian officials have repeatedly stated that the nuclear program is for peaceful purposes, but many Western countries believe that it will serve a more nefarious purpose. In light of these events, President Obama, along with Prime Minister, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown and French President Nicolas Sarkozy, denounced the existence of the uranium enrichment facility at Qom and insisted that it must be opened immediately for inspection by the International Atomic Energy Agency. The threat of further sanctions has also accompanied these latest warnings. Excitement is high for the people of Chicago as they will find out on Friday whether their city will be picked to host the 2016 Olympic Games at the 121st meeting of the International Olympic Committee in Copenhagen. President Obama, who hails from Chicago, is planning to visit Denmark along with the First Lady Michelle to show support for the bid, according to USA Today. Other famous Chicagoans, Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan, have also been instrumental in creating public support for the plan. Chicago is facing three other candidate cities, Tokyo, Rio de Janeiro, and Madrid. It is generally accepted that Tokyo and Madrid are not favored because Europe and Asia will have hosted the previous Olympiads. Meanwhile, Brazil's Rio de Janeiro is hoping to be the first South American city to ever hold the Games. The last time an American city has hosted this summer Olympic Games was Atlanta in 1996 and Salt Lake City in 2002 for the Winter Games. New York City had an unsuccessful bid to host the 2012 Games, losing out to London. The upcoming Winter Games in Vancouver, Canada, are only four and a half months away. Incumbent German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who won re-election in Germany's parliamentary elections on Sunday, has pledged a swift transition in government, according to the BBC. Merkel has outlined plans to form a center-right coalition between her party, the Christian Democratic Union, and the pro-business Free Democrats. Germany is currently in its worst recession since the Second World War, while the unemployment level and the budget deficit are rising. Chancellor Merkel is quoted as saying that she will hold swift and decisive talks with leader of the Free Democrats, Guido Westerveld, to arrange the formation of a new coalition before November 9th, when Germany marks 20 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Although the Free Democrats would be the junior partners in the coalition, Westerveld is expected to push for bold reforms and swift tax cuts in order to revive the sinking economy. Financial markets and business leaders have praised Sunday's election result, but the ensuing coalition talks will certainly be tough. Following the election, Merkel has made clear her intentions to focus on unemployment amid public unrest that Germany will enter a quote-unquote winter of discontent. North Carolina has managed to ride out this year's hurricane season so far, but parts of the Philippines have been devastated by Typhoon Ondoy. Other media sources have referred to this storm as Typhoon Ketsana, but the Philippines maintain their own hurricane naming system. Neither the winds nor the waves from Andoy were particularly extreme. At the time, the storm was only classified as a tropical storm. But after making landfall on the island of Luzon on the 26th, the storm proceeded to pour record amounts of rain on the capital city of Manila. The nearly 18 inches of rain triggered flooding and landslides, resulting in over 100 fatalities, dozens reported missing, and thousands of rescues, according to Philippines' ABS-CBN News. 
Now officials are most concerned about diseases spreading amongst the thousands of evacuees. News agency France 24 is following a breaking story in Conquery, the capital city of Guinea, where violence at a rally protesting the decision of junta captain Moussa Dadi Kamara to run for election in 2010 has resulted in the deaths of at least 58 people. Guinea's security forces reportedly opened fire on opposition demonstrators and were later seen removing the bodies in, a, in an attempt to conceal the bloodshed. The rally had been banned by the junta, but numerous political parties, trade unions, and civic organizations vowed that it would proceed. The protesters had gathered to oppose any bid by the junta leader to seek office in elections next January. Having seized power in December of 2008, Kamara has been met with strong international calls to step down. A referendum on the European Union's Treaty of Lisbon will be placed before Irish voters on Friday. Despite passing both houses of Irish government, a referendum last summer saw opponents narrowly win. This time, polling indicates that supporters of the treaty have 55% of the vote, according to Ireland's RTE News. This new referendum has large impacts for Europe as a whole. All EU members must ratify the treaty in order for major reforms to take place. The Czech Republic and Poland are the only other nations that haven't ratified despite legislative approval, and their leaders are looking to the outcome of the Irish vote before proceeding. If the treaty is eventually ratified, it could mean an expanded role for the European Parliament and what is being called a, quote, European president. If you didn't already receive the email, here's an update on NCSU's flu vaccination plans. The shot is free for Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina members and $15 for all others. The nasal vaccination is $35 for everyone, even BCBSNC members. The next planned vaccination clinic for the seasonal flu, not H1N1, is on October 13th, followed by October 15th. You can find more specific information on the times and locations as the health center's website at the, at the Health Center's website, www.ncsu.edu slash student underscore health. You can find more information about the flu prevention and treatment at www.cdc.gov. Google Flu Trends currently indicates high flu activity nationwide and high activity in North Carolina. Google estimates February levels of activity occurring this early in the flu season, unprecedented in recent years. In other news, Rock Hill, South Carolina, ground zero for a frightening new trend. You've heard of dog attacks, pig attacks, and even monkey attacks, but keep your eyes to the sky for owl attacks if you happen to be walking through Cherry Park. After several passers-by were roughed up by the large bird, WSOC-TV reports that park officials have closed the walking trail where the attacks occurred. That section of the park will not reopen until the owl is captured. Perhaps you saw the vile viral video this spring where the employees of a Catawba County Domino's Pizza restaurant defaced the dough and mistreated the meat. That restaurant is closed, according to Charlotte's WBTV, presumably due to the preparation techniques. Rest easy, Conover. The number four most highly compensated nonprofit employee in the U.S. is Duke's basketball, Duke Basketball's Coach K. The top ten list compiled by USA Today also includes clinical professors, museum directors, and hospital CEOs. Coach K nets around $3.7 million annually. And today is World Rabies Day. Also coinciding is Hillary Duff's birthday along with the birthday of Confucius. And on this day in 1928, Sir Alexander Fleming notices a bacteria-killing mold growing in his laboratory, discovering what later becomes known as penicillin. Tomorrow, Tuesday, will mark 
one year following the bankruptcies of Lehman Brothers and Washington Mutual, and one year since the Dow Jones and Industrial Average falls 777.68 points, the largest single-day point loss in its history. And uh, I can imagine now, if you've looked out at a window to the west, you see the sky's gotten rather dark, so we'll take a minute here to talk about the weather situation. The entire WKNC listening area is under a severe thunderstorm watch. Uh, does not mean an imminent threat necessarily until 10 p.m. However, there is a warning right now for the city of Raleigh. I uh, can go ahead and read the warning language for you. It's until 7.45 p.m., including most of southern Wake County. Right now, there's a severe thunderstorm over Jordan Lake or west of Pittsburgh. It's moving east at 35 miles an hour and contains penny-sized hail and winds in excess of 58 miles an hour. So locations impacted could include Carpenter, New Hill, Apex, Morrisville, Cary, Lake Wheeler, and, yes, Raleigh. Uh, because of the damaging winds threat, there have already been two reports of wind damage, one in Chapel here. Hill near Martin Luther King Boulevard and Critz Drive with a tree down at 617. Another one back in Alamance County at 615. So we know the potential exists for thunderstorm damage to occur out of these storms. Uh, you want to stay inside and maybe move the car into the garage if you'd like. Uh, not a great time to hit the roads if you don't have to either because the rush hour traffic is still winding down. Also warnings in effect for Franklin, Granville, Nash, and Wake County, the northern part of Wake, until 745. Another warning for Alamance, Chatham, and Orange that should be expiring rather soon. That covers it for the warnings, but just uh, stay near a weather radio or the local TV or WKNC during the next hour uh, to stay ahead of this nasty weather. Should move through tonight, though, giving us a clear night with rather cool temperatures in the lower 50s. A day tomorrow, sunny with a high of 73. That wraps it up for the news here on Eye on the Triangle. the triangles vip talking to people that matter you're listening to eye on the triangles vip i'm seja hindi as a part of a two-show series on all aspects of football games i interviewed campus police chief tommy Owens and captain john barnwell about what campus police does in preparation for games you can listen here my name is chief tom yance i'm the uh, police chief here at uh, north carolina state university and i'm john barnwell i'm the patrol division commander for the uh, police department here at the university uh, football is a major event on campus, not only for um, athletics, but also for the police department. We start a, really our planning process for football after the end of each season, and it continues on throughout the year. Uh, prior to a home football game, the week before, we go into actual uh, assignments and, and more details, depending upon the opponent and time of day. Uh, typically, we'll start to lock down the stadium in the middle of the week. Uh, to make sure nobody gets into the stadium that's unauthorized. And then uh, two days, two to three days before the football kickoff is we meet with all our supervisors, and uh, we're assisted by the Raleigh Police Department, Wake County, Wake County CCBI. And so we have a general meeting on Thursdays and uh, for Saturday the kickoff. We typically hire between 80 and to 120 police officers to, to cover each game each, each week. I think this year is probably uh, there's a lot more excitement generated by by the football team. Uh, there's a lot of excitement is generated before the season started, so high expectations. Uh, as a result, we've got had a lot of people coming to the home football games, uh, both in terms of people who were come to tailgate and not necessarily going to the ball game, but uh, come to the ball games. Uh, last Saturday night for the uh, uh, Pitt, Pittsburgh game, we had a, a sellout. 
and uh, had a full stadium, had a full parking lot. Uh, same thing applied to the South Carolina game. In fact, South Carolina and Pittsburgh pretty much mirrored each other in terms of attendance. So anytime we have a crowd like that, it generates a lot of enthusiasm. It generates a lot of enthusiasm that bubbles over into uh, misbehavior, disorderly conduct. Uh, you know, when you put together 60, 65, maybe even 70,000 people when you start talking about the parking lots, uh, you're going to have some problems. And I think it's uh, also indicative of the record of the football team uh, as well as the time of, of the start of the game. Uh, historically speaking, we typically see uh, a lot more disruptive behavior for night games, and we've had uh, four of those so far this season. So uh, our numbers are a little higher than they are uh, during the normal season uh, or regular season. Uh, but again, uh, if the record continues to improve, uh, Wolfpack continues to win, uh, the excitement continues to build, and therefore it does lead to uh, potential situations where we're having to deal with people. You know, what, what we try to do, we, we really try to be proactive. We want everybody to have a good time, but we also want everybody to be safe. So, uh, you know, we try to take proactive, uh, and in some cases we, we may be uh, aggressive, not in terms of physically aggressive, but actually looking for, for people who have the potential of being d- disruptive. Uh, alcohol, of course, is our number one problem in terms of uh, people who consume too much and then come into the stadium and go out at halftime and, again, consume out there in the park a lot and come back in. So we end up having to eject quite a few people from our ball games. We'll talk about this a little more in depth during the second segment of VIP today. But in 2004, a double murder occurred at a tailgating lot, consequently putting more pressure on campus police security. Janssen Barnwell give us an inside look on what that's like. Uh, both, uh, both of us were here. Uh, I believe it was, t- it was in uh, September 2004. Uh, and, you know, what's somewhat interesting, I guess you want to st- interesting is not the word for it, but uh, the shooting took place off campus. It did not take place on campus. And, in fact, that area was not even patrolled by uh, university police or the Wake County Sheriff's Department or the Raleigh Police Department. Uh, it was on the fairgrounds, and at that particular time, uh, when the shooting took place, there, there were no, at least from university perspective, there were you know, no university police officers, anybody working for the university. And uh, although it was our fan, so the university took responsibility after that shooting and worked out agreement with the state fairgrounds to uh, provide for in-depth security at, at uh, we call it Bunfield, uh, there on Trinity Road, which was a, you know, direct result of, of the shooting. And... Uh, it made an additional parking area for us, I think, that, that uh, student area, student parking, that made a lot, lot larger student parking, and also a little bit more control over what was happening in that area. Johnson Burnwell also talked about how football games are the biggest events on campus, and a game plan is necessary to make sure everything goes as planned. As, as uh, Captain Barnwell talked about, our, our game plan involves time of day and also the opponent. And, of course, South Carolina was a big game. Number one is the opening, opening ball game. Number two, it took place on Thursday night, so you had a problem of, of traffic congestion with people getting off work, trying to get to the parking lot. Uh, and then it was a sellout crowd. And so anytime you have those things that mix together, you're going to have some issues. This one last Saturday night was, was, a, was a, uh, a difficult event for us. Number one, you had rain. People came in later. Uh, the stands filled up. We had a particular problem in section 14 and 15 that's, uh, uh, I think, now trying to under review to, to see f- 
what happened, but it was overcrowded. In fact, it was it was it was so crowded that the fire marshal said told us to shut it down. There were no aisles, uh, and so we're not sure exactly what happened there. But that was that created a problem. I know for the fans because a lot of them wanted to get in and see the ball game, and unfortunately, we had to at at uh, for safety reason that that particular area had to be shut down until we could get things under control and the parking lot open. But we, it was kind of unusual in that it was parents' weekend. Uh, typically, when we have parents' weekend, uh, generally we don't have the amount of misbehavior that we have at, at other ball games. So this past uh, Saturday night was a challenge for us. The university, and in particular the University Police Department, we employ Raleigh Police Officers, Wake County Sheriff's Department, and uh, Wake County City County Bureau of Identification. Uh, City County Bureau of Identification takes care of uh, photography for us and video photography. Uh, but we operate, uh, the university police take charge of the ball games, and we actually supervise the Raleigh Police and Wake County Sheriff's Department. Uh, we have on our staff uh, a little over 50 officers, and obviously we don't sacrifice what's going on on campus for the ball game, so we have to bring in additional officers to supplement our, our officers that are working the ball games. So Raleigh comes in and helps us. They have a captain that works with us. Wake County Sheriff Department has a captain that works with us, and they actually uh, uh, sign the officers to work with us at the ball games. And that was Campus Police Chief Tom Younts and Captain John Barnwell on Eye on the Triangle's VIP. For more information on how to stay safe at football games or how to make security even easier for campus police, check out our blog at wknc.org slash blog. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. For some students like Tyler Dukes and Kenneth Ball, tailgating is as much a part of the game experience as is the actual football game. Tailgating, they say, is one of the few time-honored traditions at NC State and is a tradition that students, alumni, and fans can all take part in. Dukes and Ball explain to us their history with tailgating and why they feel it is such an important tradition at NC State. I'm Seja Hindi and you're listening to Eye on the Triangle's VIP. My name is Tyler Dukes and I was the uh, editor-in-chief of the Technician in 2006-2007 and I'm an 08 graduate science, technology, and society. My name is Kenneth Ball. I am an 07 graduate in physics and applied mathematics. I'm a third-year grad student now in uh, mathematics, and I used to be a columnist at the Technician, and uh, also I was a news writer at the Technician. Tailgating is one of those things that's just always been around at NC State, and it's one of the things that makes us unique. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, it's for a school to have a good tailgating tradition. Uh, it's fairly few and far between. But it's one of those things that, you know, everybody can get behind because you don't even have to be a huge football fan necessarily to love tailgating. It's about coming out and hanging out with people. You know, there doesn't necessarily have to be alcohol involved, although that's the way I prefer to celebrate tailgating. But, you know, it's about gathering a bunch of people together and, you know, showing pride in NC State. There's not a lot of things here at NC State where you're walking around screaming about how much you love this university. I think that's one of the reasons why people so adamantly defend tailgating. And like Duke said, tailgating or pregaming can be a full day affair. Many people consider this tradition a staple in Southern culture, sometimes being more important than the game itself. I asked Dukes and Ball to walk us through a day of full tailgating for them, including their barbecue prep. 
I'll let Ken get to the the big part, but I mean, there's actually a, a little bit of planning that goes into it because I mean, there are things we have to figure out. You know, who's driving? Who's got tickets? Who you know? Who's cooking the pig? How many people are coming? And some of these things that we're we're doing. I mean, geez, for the South Carolina game, how many people do we have out there? Probably um, eighty. Probably right. Yeah. And we're you know, and eighty. You're talking about cooking a meal. We're not just talking about cooking burgers and dogs. We're talking cook, talk about cooking a meal for eighty people. That's a big task. And so that's something that kind of needs some planning. Yeah. So yeah. We'll, that that starts the the whole process. Definitely, I think that the, the first thing is really figuring out how many people are going to come out and eat. You know, when I go to pick up a pig, I, I, I got to make my order typically for a pig for a Saturday game. I'm probably going to end up picking it up on Friday afternoon, which means I usually have to order it by Wednesday, which means I have to hound my friends and everyone I know that I think might be coming out and be like, "Hey, how many people do you think are coming out with you? You think you're going to eat? Because I don't want to go out and buy a hundred pound pig when only ten people show up and eat. You know. So definitely the first part of everything is figuring out the logistics behind it, how many people are coming and and like Tyler said, definitely getting parking permits, see how many you can get. Because we, we have to have the tools out there to, to set up. And I mean, we, we are really talking about having a $300 celebration out there, you know, every Saturday in a lot of cases, you know, so it's a big affair. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I think the, the, the one we just did, the, or that South Carolina one, we, we probably spent around that much money altogether and hopefully made it back. I think we did pretty good this time. We, we usually don't make all, make back all the money that everyone ends up spending, but yeah. So then we get a pig and start it up. Usually ten hours, twelve hours before you want to eat. Mind so the game starts at six. Probably want to eat at what three or four. Probably want to start the pig around five in the morning, six in the morning. Which you know that's even more challenging when it's a Thursday game. Right. Yeah. This is really for evening games. I, I think that we did a pig once for a for a noon game, and it was just not. That was just too much. I think for for noon games, breakfast is is the meal of choice. I I, I really admire the folks that have the dedication to have a pig cooked and ready to eat at, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning for a noon game. I'm fine with sausage and pancakes. Yeah, I'm not sure I would have the energy to enjoy tailgate if I had been up since midnight cooking a pig. But yeah, yeah, doing that. Uh, then, you know, I think the next the next major step is getting everyone out there because especially now, now with the reduced hours, you know, you want to get out there and get a good spot, which means you have to leave right, right when we can so that we get out to the lots right when they open so we can get a good spot. Because if you show up there an hour late, you can't, everyone can't park with each other. And if you show up there three hours late, you might not even, you might not even get a spot in the, uh, in the parking lots. Because I know for bigger games, they turn people away in those lots. Even if you have a permit, you show up there three or four hours after tailgating has started and just expect to park. You, your chances are you're not going to get a spot. Tailgating, though, is definitely not a tradition that has been untouched. In the 2004 season opener, two non-student tailgaters were murdered shortly after kickoff in a tailgating lot off Trinity Road and Youth Center Drive. Timothy Johnson, a junior in psychology, and his younger brother Tony were charged hours after the game with first-degree murder. This led university officials to reevaluate tailgating policies and restrictions. Dukes, who covered the Johnson's trial, talked to us about the issue. Yeah, I guess I can give you the, the history as far as I know it now. I um, I know Ken's parents went to NC State, so, right. so he... he as far as being steeped in the history, he's he knows a lot more about it. But uh, in terms of the shooting, before the shooting in 2004, the tradition was much larger than it is now. It was an all-day affair. You would get out there at the crack of dawn, you would start a pig up, and you would sit around, or you'd sleep in the car, or you'd sleep in a tent. And uh, another beautiful thing about it was uh, there, there were no parking passes. It was first come, first serve. So that meant that the diehard fans got there early and got good spots, and it meant that we also involved the community. We had alumni 
alumni that couldn't necessarily afford to buy season tickets and parking passes and, and those kinds of things. And they were out there, you know, rocking their state gear and having just as much fun as we were as students. And in 2004, that all changed. Now, I, I think in, in my opinion, just to lead up to that, I think that the administration of NC State was looking to tamp down on, on tailgating because they had gotten so many complaints from alumni about, you know, we can't take our kids to games and there's all this drunken, disorderly conduct. So that was the that was the atmosphere kind of going into that. It certainly was, and that actually followed a, a trend from earlier where I think between around around 2002 and 2003 when the city of Raleigh and uh, the university cracked down on the Brent Ridd party that happened at the beginning of the semester every year, and there were a lot of complaints about that. And so there was definitely a trend of cracking down on what a lot of people would consider to be traditions. Right, right. Uh, in traditional parties, and, maybe, but traditions still. Well, the Brent Road Party is one of those examples of a, of a pretty big tradition at NC State that, that doesn't exist anymore. And, and actually, most people don't really know uh, Brent Road. I mean, geez, when we first came here, it was just starting to peter out. But Brent Road was still infamous for this big, huge block party that would happen on, what, the first Friday, I think, of every uh, school year. And it would just be packed with people, a lot of them underage. And basically Raleigh police just started coming in and, and sweeping up these underage drinkers and giving out tickets. And eventually it, it basically squashed that whole party. So you're right, that, that trend was definitely leading up to the shooting in 2004. And, and also, I, I also want to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and not acknowledge the fact that there were definitely some bad things that were going on at some of these parties. I mean, there in a lot of cases, it was really dangerous. I mean, you're seeing the situations like what they have at Franklin Street now where there's some dangers involved in having that many people in one place being really drunk and a lot of them being underage and not knowing how to handle themselves. So, you know, there are both sides to it. That was the atmosphere going into the game, and that's, that's important because you will understand why the backlash happened. But in 2004, one student named Timothy Johnson and his younger brother were out tailgating, and they were drunk and high. Timothy uh, was a drug dealer, and he had been been dealing drugs at NC State, and even before that, I think at that point, Tim was pulling in five to six thousand dollars a week dealing drugs, according to his girlfriend at the time. And so he was uh, a bad character starting out. But in two thousand four, the the season opener, basically what happened is that his his brother kind of went out of control, was driving around recklessly in the tailgate lot, and as anyone who has been to tailgate now can tell you that that's a very unsafe environment. And so a lot of people on in the tailgate lots were basically trying to chase this guy down. And, and basically what ended up happening was a, a group of people headed over to where Tim and Tony were and some of their friends were tailgating. And Tony basically ran up to his group of friends in an attempt to for these guys to save him and, and or I guess to, to get saved from this mob of people. And Timothy, the older brother, he pulled a gun from his car that he had bought the night before, actually. And he says that he was in, intending to fire a warning shot or scare these guys off. But what actually happened was that he struck and killed two guys, Kevin McCann and Brett Harmon, who died uh, at the scene. They were 
were, I believe, from the opposing team, actually. So they were visitors to Carter Finley, and they died in the tailgate lot. And, I mean, as you can imagine, just a horrible scene. I mean, this is, um, you know, it's it's as crowded as any tailgate is. Uh, there are tons of people out there, and uh, it, was just, uh, it was just a really bad situation. So basically, the administration was, was forced to make a decision about what they were going to do with tailgating because this was, unfortunately, the last straw. And, um, you know, a, a discussion like this always, you know, it, it's it's bad that this discussion about tailgating, something that should be, you know, fun and, and a tradition at school has to hinge around the, the murders of, of these two guys. But really, it was a catalyst for change. And, and I definitely don't want to trivialize their, their deaths by placing it in the context of tailgating. But that's un- unfortunately what happened. Now, I, I will say Tim's mental state at that point, probably not typical of the, the tailgate. I mean, you know, there there is a lot of drunkenness on a tailgate. Anyone can tell you that. But Tim had had, uh, by, by the accounts given in, in court, and, and I covered the, the court case, but he was, he had had 12 beers, 7 to 10 shots of rum. He was high on marijuana and cocaine. Now, that's not something that you typically find when you're out on, on tailgate. So, you know, that was a, it was just a bad situation. There was no way that was going to end well. You know, the period after that was, was very, was very hectic. So what eventually happened is they changed tailgating and limited it to only a few hours before the game. In other words, they, they changed completely what the, the typical tradition of showing up before, like hours and hours and hours before the game. You had a few hours to tailgate. And that was it. They wouldn't let anybody in. And then in addition to that, you had to be a, have a parking pass. You had to be a student with a ticket. So, and their attempt there was to make sure that you, uh, that the people who were tailgating were the people who were coming in to the stadium to watch the game. Although it, it is interesting to note that, uh, I mean, right now it's you can't get in there, I think, because of construction. But the uh, the vet school lot, I think, for as, as long as I can remember, even since then, ha- has been an unregulated tailgating lot. Uh, well, at least in terms of permitting. After the shootings, tailgating was restricted to three hours before kickoff in the Trinity Road lot, which was the same as the lot surrounding Carter-Finley. The following year, tailgating was restricted to four hours before kickoff, and in 2006, after negotiating with administrators, students got tailgating hours extended to five. However, when hours were first reduced, many students questioned whether the administrators were overreacting. According to Dukes, this was also a question that was raised in the newsroom at the time. It was, a, it was one of those things that we struggled with. The argument at the time was that, or at least by students, uh, most students, was that they did overreact. Students said that this was an isolated incident. It was by a guy who does not represent the mainstream uh, student. And, you know, basically they were trying to get through to the administration and tell, and to tell them that this this is not what's going to happen. It's not what you have to guard against. This was a freak thing and the chances of it ever happening again were not likely. But from the administration side, I think what they were seeing was a was a pattern of behavior where things were getting out of hand. They were they were under pressure from alumni who were paying a lot more money than students to get into these games and see these games. And so they had to balance, you know, those opposing pressures. I'd say additionally, the university certainly at, at the very onset of, of what happened uh, you know, immediately after the, the tragedy, they certainly had to uh, look like they were doing something and, and, and they, uh, to a certain extent, save face. You know, they had to they had to look like they were cracking down on something hard because this was a, a, a national news. Right. This was this was a big deal to have this kind of murder and shooting at a, a you know, NCAA ACC football game. It, it was it was a big deal. And the university definitely felt like they needed to 
look like they were doing something important or, or doing something that would uh, prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. Of course, you know, how do you really prevent something like this from happening in the future? And I think the real question is, is uh, you know, did they? So immediately it's understandable if they took a very hard line approach to it, I think. But, you know, the real the real question is, you know, was the, the ultimate response, was it appropriate? Did it actually prevent something like this from happening in the future? Although many students have complained about the reduction in tailgating hours, administrators have refused to back down to allow for unlimited hours. Both Dukes and Ball had to objectively cover the issue in their technician stories, but they also have their own personal convictions. If you're asking just my point of view, I think five hours is pretty good. You know, at the end of five hours, I'm I'm pretty ready to go in and uh, grab a seat and watch some football. Now, of course, Ken and I are usually the ones running around cooking everything, and we're the ones that are running around and have been running around since either the night before or at the crack of dawn before. So there's some people that might have some differing opinions about how long tailgate should be. But I I, I think, as it stands now, I, I think it's a pretty good system. I think we've we found a, a balance where we can balance that enforcement. Again, we talked about how visible police officers are and, and that kind of thing. And I still think it's a blast. I mean, it's it's fun. It's worth it to spend an entire day on uh, NC State football when when you're following it from tailgate to the end of the game. I agree. I think it's I think it's great. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would really want to go out much earlier than five hours before the game anyways, uh, because uh, I, I, I have a great time every time I go out. I, I will say that I think that it's important that we keep in mind that tailgate used to be a lot longer and we know what the history was behind the tradition. And also, I think that it's important that we we. We accept how it is now, but we also, you know, fight and so it's not not necessarily fight, but to really work to keep it as good as it is, because there's always uh, there's always going to be pressure to to diminish this tradition because someone out there is going to say this is unsafe. Someone out there is going to say this is offensive to me, you know, and uh, and that could be someone important out there that's saying that. And, you know, God forbid, you know, something something's going to happen, you know, some some horrible thing. You know, may may happen. So you know, it, it's important that we keep in mind that tailgating is an important tradition, and we always work to pr- protect that tradition. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think that's an important point because it it is important for the people that are out there tailgating to realize what they've got and and to re- remember that actions have consequences. And you know, these these two guys that that died out there showed that. You know, so you know, it's not just about you know going out and getting as drunk as possible because this is something that's important to the university and simple important to a lot of people. So it is important for the people who are celebrating this this tradition to be responsible. I'm Saja Hindi and you just heard alumni Tyler Dukes and Kenneth Ball and I am the Triangles VIP. This segment was part of a two-show series on all aspects of football games. Be sure to check out our blog on wknc.org/blog for more information on the history of tailgating and tune into next week's show for some interviews with some players and the coach about the football season ahead. And welcome back to WKNC's Eye on the Triangle. I'm Jack Boyer. Earlier when you joined us for the news, we were talking a little about the severe weather threat this evening throughout the Carolinas. Uh, The warning that was in effect for Wake County, the northern half has been dropped, but the southern half is still in effect as the storm continues to roll through the city. Thought we'd point out a few points of interest here. Uh, Some storm damage reported in Siler City, some power lines down, and so Progress Energy is reporting uh, about 50 customers without power in that part of the county. As well, there are numerous small power outages across Wake County right now. Uh, One reminder to watch out for the lightning. Earlier in the news last Friday, a a woman in Fayetteville and her child were struck by lightning simply by holding an umbrella. 
So that is not something that you want to be. Is you don't want to be outside during a storm like this necessarily. Also, one report of a tree down near uh, Silk Hope Lindley Mill Road in Siler City in Chatham County at 647. So the point is these storms are capable of producing wind damage and penny-sized hail as it moves to the east at 45 miles an hour. So that warning should be expired here in the next six minutes in Wake County. But until that time, just uh, don't be on the roads if you don't have to and play it safe out there. Stay with us here on Eye on the Triangle as it continues. Hear this on Eye on the Triangle. Your local music news. Six months after forming, local band Starmount played their first concert. A quick turnaround for the four-piece, taking that frontman and pedal steel guitar player Greg Elkins had learned to play the instrument the same six months prior. However, for anyone familiar in the local music history of the Triangle, Greg Elkins is no freshman to making music. His history goes back to the 90s with the band Vanilla Trainwreck, and since then has filled the shoes of both producer and engineer, including having established Desolation Row recordings. And now, after playing select shows in the Triangle and building their momentum, October 27th will mark the release of Starmount's debut album, Tyranny of the Sphere. The album will be released on Superfan Records, home to such local acts as the Monologue Bombs, Regina Hexaphone, and the Kick and Grass Band. With this album, Starmount has delivered a complete soundscape of songs, and in its entirety, it feels like a novel or a soundtrack to a movie. The ability of drummer Brian Donahoe and upright bassist Dave Pitts to add both elements of jazz and prog complement the interluding textural pieces of Synthesizer from Rob Davis, all of which are the foundation for the lyrical voice of Elkin's pedal steel guitar. This type of composition is heard here in the track The Battle of Brentwood Creek. release will be held at Marsh Woodwinds in Raleigh on October 30th. For other local music buzz, we turn to psychedelic rockers Birds of Avalon. Coming off the June release of their second full-length album entitled Uncanny Valley, they are back on the roads again in the white high-top conversion van, pushing hard through the fall tour dates. September has treated them well with an invitational performance at the All Tomorrow's Parties Festival in New York on the stage curated by the Flaming Lips. They shared the stage with such acts as Bob Mould, Black Moth, Super Rainbow, and Menomina. They continue to tour through mid-October and will leave fans across Texas, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania thoroughly amazed with their songs like this one, Spirit Lawyer. And for something not entirely local, but noteworthy, nonetheless, Dan Deacon will be at the Cat's Cradle Thursday, October 1st with Nuclear Power Pants. Baltimore electronic artist Dan Deacon carries ties to North Carolina through the Greenville-based band Future Islands. Future Islands relocated last year to join Dan Deacon's Wham City Collective. 
Both groups share a relentless manic energy at live shows. And although Future Islands are more new wave than Deacon's angular electronics, they shared a 7-inch release earlier this year on Durham label 307 Knox Records. Deacon is working off his March release entitled Bromst, which included tracks like this one entitled Woof Woof. Remember, for updates concerning local shows in the Triangle, you can go to wknc.org slash rockreport. Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle. Your local arts news. In light of the Hear Hear finale show this Saturday at the Poor House, we here at Eye on the Triangle figured it would be a good opportunity to revisit our interview with local artist Ryan Cummings, whose work provides the visual aspect of the CD here, here. All of the artwork, that is the cover art, the inside spread, and the CD itself, is his work. The front of the album represents Centennial Campus at NC State. The CD itself is a farm property his parents own. And the inside spread is, of course, the downtown Raleigh skyline. Cummings makes a living offering his art in unique places, in unique ways. He also provides us with some insights on how exactly you can survive as a full-time artist. Let's hear his story. I graduated from the School of Design at State in 91, and then I just started uh, doing the starving artist thing, making a living barely, right. doing wall finishes and stuff like that. I got into a job over in Cary with a company, and shortly after that, I moved down to Florida, West Palm Beach. A friend of mine moved down there, and uh, I saw all the growth and development that was going on, so I thought there was a good opportunity to do a lot of work and learn a lot. So I went down there for about six years. And is, and is this stuff that you actually learned how to do at NC State or is it stuff that you picked up in trade? Or I what? picked that up on the job actually. Okay. Yeah, at State it was more of graphic design background. That's what my gr degree was actually in. Uh -huh. And this might just be, you know, since graphic design was your focus at State, but would you say that the preparation that you had in school, in the design mm -hmm. school, was more geared towards fitting in at a company that needs a, needs a service or was it geared towards your like individual creativity or yeah there's definitely same? a lot of that going on uh they definitely wanted to make sure you were ready for the job market right <laughs> so at what point did you sort of realize that you wanted to do things on your terms as an artist rather than on your boss's terms per se uh probably when I was about five years old <laughs> okay yeah cool. so so you so you figured nc state would be a pretty good avenue yeah for it was beginning i i just started looking into colleges when i was in high school and i looked into nc state i got some literature in the mail and everything I came from a really, really small town outside of Greensboro, mm -hmm. uh, Summerfield. Summerfield. Yeah, you, you've never heard of it, believe nope, me. absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, when I started learning about State and all the, uh, the design school, the opportunities that were there, mm -hmm. the things that they were teaching, it sounded really very, very interesting to me uh -huh. at the time. It was a so, good jumping off point in yeah. your career. Yeah, more than just art. I wasn't necessarily, I was always an artist, I guess. I was always drawing, always painting. The design school seemed to offer something a little bit more of a broad spectrum than just your basic art school. Mm. So you said you moved back from Florida mm -hmm. around what time? Uh, three years ago. 
Okay, uh, so that's very recent. And at that point, you had been working in Florida, and you had sort of been equipped with all these new talents and abilities, like mm -hmm. you're saying, yeah. wall finishes and sort of things. Uh, how, do, how do you market yourself as an artist today? How do you get the word out that, hey, I'm here, I can make your business, Flying Biscuit, for example, look really cool? Yeah, yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah. Um, if you go to designers, decorators, architects, that's usually a good avenue. People like that usually incorporate art into what they do. If you have a, you know, if you have a good website and you're out there, people can find you on their own as well. Right. But usually it's the designers, the decorators. So let's make sure I'm not leaving anything off here. What, where can people, where have people probably seen your art in Raleigh that they may or may not have known was yours? Uh, I've been in shows at the Visual Arts Exchange. Um, I got a couple of paintings up now at art space i'm a member of the artist association mm -hmm. down there now mm -hmm. um besides the flying biscuit uh the bar foundation that's right yeah uh down there i got a couple of paintings i'm rotating in and out from time to time i got about 20 paintings just kind of laying around right now mm -hmm. and so i pretty much rotate them in and out of there so so with the case like the flying biscuit was that was that the client saying we want something unique or was that then the architect saying mm -hmm. we want to give you something unique and we know just the thing yeah that was actually the client yeah, okay, they, cool. they, they, they found my website somehow. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I talked to them for like five minutes and the decorator. Mm -hmm. And that was it. They just, yeah, go ahead, do it. That must Fine. have been pretty exciting to get to be commissioned for the, the walls and the ceiling and the air duct and everything. Yeah, that was a good opportunity. That was a good job. Uh -huh. It took, well, it didn't take that long and everyone sees it. So it's right. a very good venue. Yeah, cool. Uh, when, let's say, like a residential client comes in, I know you've done a couple houses, you've mm -hmm. done finishes and walls and whatnot. Uh, how much direction do you get as the artist? Is it, hey, we've heard you're good, do something? Or is it like, we want this specifically? Yeah, sometimes it's that specific. Sometimes uh -huh. they know exactly what they want. Mm -hmm. um, most people, on the other hand, they they want to see what you can do. They want to see if you've been doing it for a while. Right. You probably have a good number of you know, finishes that you've done, samples, photographs, things like that you can show them. Mm -hmm. A lot of resource material. Right. They definitely want as much input as possible, or at least the good clients do. Right. If uh, you get a client that says, basically, I don't care, do whatever you want, you might be in trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah, that right. might be the beginning of the end right there. <laughs> exactly. So you might want to start looking for the door. But, uh, yeah, it, it, I think the, the, well, the best clients that I've had are the ones that are actually the most picky, the ones right. who really know what they want yeah they know what they want and they actually have been around a little bit and they've seen some things they've been out of the country they've been around they know what a good mural is mm -hmm. like where do you draw your inspiration from in terms of like well i've seen this done before or i know that this is a good palette or mm -hmm. anything like that yeah i'm kind of weird like that i, I get it from everywhere uh -huh. I, I can be walking down the street and just see something and that's right. it uh, when so i was down in florida there were a lot of for some reason down there in the tropic zone the, the clouds were different the sun mm -hmm. was different. The light was different. I uh, took my camera all the time and uh, scared the hell out of a few people because I was taking a picture <laughs> while I was driving right. down 95 of the sun oh, or the great. sky, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning. The job so, never stops, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you never know when you're going to see something. And a couple of the best paintings I ever had, I just happened to have my camera with me. And I took a few photographs mm -hmm. and made a couple of sketches just pulling off on the side of the road. Um, so let's talk also a little bit about the Here Here compilation. Um, we basically got together and decided we're going to need some art for this album. Uh, and honestly, that was about it. We said, mm -hmm. what would be cool? Well, something that, we, something that will represent what we're doing, the, the triangle area, basically. Um, and I guess that was probably the statement that you heard 
when you ran with uh, what you did. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, Sarah at the Visual Arts Exchange told me about it, and she got in touch with me, and the paintings already made, uh-huh. already done. I'd started doing a lot of landscapes around town, mm-hmm. doing you know, some pretty well-recognizable or popular places right. around town. So to anyone who's an aspiring artist out there, can you be a full-time artist in the Triangle area today? Yeah, yeah, you can. It's just extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot of work, and the broader skill set you have, the better. If you basically put in the work beforehand, get your feet up under you, you can make a go of it. Cool. It's just, yeah, it's extremely challenging. Yeah. And, and what's the most memorable or your favorite piece that you've done, uh, be it painting or plaster or anything? Uh, the, my favorite painting that I've done is probably one that I was referring to, actually. It was called A Gathering in the Hills. Uh-huh. I think it may be the one you're referring to. That's on okay. the album, I think. Right. It's uh, It was based on a little plot of land over by my folks' place up in Riesel, up in mm-hmm. the hills. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of trees, the hills, a lot of right. photographs of people from 1890 to 1940. Yep. Uh, so for more information, com. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we look forward to seeing your work on the walls of future restaurants, hopefully. Yeah, me too. Thanks again to Ryan Cummings. To hear this interview again and to see his artwork, please visit WKNC.org. The Gridiron is only one place for football action here at North Carolina State University. On the Triangles, Wolfpacker of the Week, Katie Red Walls, takes to the pitch to give us information on NCSU's Women's Rugby Club. My name is Katie Walls. I play rugby at North Carolina State University. This is my second semester, second year playing rugby. On the pitch, my teammates call me Red. I acquired that nickname from our team having an excess amount of Katie's, Catherine's, Kate's, Cats, because I fall in that category. They uh, decided to go off a physical attribute. When I first joined the team, I had bright red hair dyed for a UNC football game, and uh, it stuck. And so henceforth, Katie's no longer, and red was born. Rugby at North Carolina State is unlike any other club sport that you can find. We're, uh, we're all a really tight-knit group of girls. My teammates are more like my family than, uh, than anything else, especially since my family isn't always around. But my teammates, I'm with them 90% of my time. I come from a soccer and a basketball background. I played when I was younger, and I just coached a Little League basketball team. And so I'm really big into team camaraderie and togetherness and things like that. And so when I heard about rugby, it kind of just made sense for me to go try it. It's actually the only women's sport at NC State that's full contact. Rugby is also a different kind of sport because it's got a position for everyone. No matter who you are, what your background is, or what sports you've played before, you can find a position on the rugby pitch and grow to be phenomenal at that. For our team, I play prop, which if you want to relate rugby to football, I'm kind of like a defensive lineman. I do a lot of the grunt work. I, uh, I work to maintain possession of the ball and get little ball handling time. Rugby is a team sport. You've got 15 players on the field at one time, but in order to work well, your 15 have to play as one. People shouldn't be afraid of rugby because it's designed to be safe. There are rules that are set in place to protect the players, which is why you don't need your pads and your helmets or anything besides your cleats and your mouth guard. If you get hurt playing rugby or someone you know gets hurt playing rugby, it's because they've done something wrong or someone else has directly done something wrong to where they get hurt. I've hurt myself twice, to be honest, and both times 
They were entirely my fault. The first time, I took my eyes off the opposition, and they just nailed me to the ground. And the second time, I just kept, I pushed myself farther than I should have. I've known no one to get hurt just by coincidence or just by accident. It's always been, had some sort of reason behind it. Rugby shouldn't scare people away. It should welcome people in. Because when you play football or other sports like that, you think that you're Superman and you can do anything because you're wearing these helmets and these pads and you can do things like that. But when you're playing rugby, you're much more conscious of your body and more likely to protect that. Outside of just playing rugby, our team does or is trying to do lots of community service work. We're looking to work with the Boys and Girls Club sometime this semester where we just go out for a day, spend some time with these kids, and uh, we're talking about teaching them to play rugby, just touch rugby, not, definitely not tackle. Just get out, spend some time with some kids, you know, make a positive influence in their lives, share some stuff with them. I'm also the webmaster for our rugby club's team. That website is wolfpackwomensrugby.com. I also maintain a blog called When Reality Becomes Digital. The idea behind that is to kind of promote rugby, not just North Carolina State, but all of North Carolina's rugby on a higher level. There are teams up in New England and out west down in California that all have this tight togetherness bond with other teams, and they network and they do things like that. But in North Carolina, it kind of falls off the map. So I've been working really hard to kind of connect all collegiate teams in North Carolina together. A few of the things I've been working towards is I've got the blog going, I'm working on a Flickr page, I make promotional reels, and I've recently sent an email to fanbase.com. Fanbase kind of organizes all collegiate and professional sports. I'm writing to them to convince them to expand to also envelope club sports and at least include rugby, because rugby is not just a club sport. Some schools in the United States have varsity rugby teams, but to include rugby, to promote rugby on a national level, because rugby is something that you can take anywhere in the world and someone you can find someone who knows something about it rugby something that no one picks up right off the bat it takes a good practice or two to kind of get the idea down and no one really fully understands until they've actually seen or played in a game personally i didn't understand until my third or fourth game i i had no clue coming in until that point new kids if you really want to come out and see what rugby's all about um, come to one of our practices tuesdays and thursdays from 5 30 to 7 30 on the lower im fields just Get your boots or your cleats, a mouth guard, and come see us at practice. But if you want to wait and see some organized rugby happen, um, our next home game is November 21st versus Elon, and that'll, again, be on Miller Fields. Before I came to state, I had no idea that rugby existed or even imagined myself playing. But now that I have, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life or my college career. I mean, I'm a student first, but secondly, I'm a rugby player. At the very least... I'm going to take rugby with me for the rest of my life, be that as a player, a spectator, or maybe even a sir or a referee. Rugby will always be a huge part of my life. Scrum up with Eye on the Triangle and supporting Red and the rest of the NCSU Women's Rugby Club by visiting www.wknc.org slash blog. Sound bites on Eye on the Triangle. Opinions from around the NC State campus. I'm Caitlin Cauley here for Eye on the Triangle Sound Bites. This week, we asked students what they think of the Rally for Tally campaign. Well, I keep hearing about the Rally for Tally thing, but I haven't really been interested at all. It seems to me, I don't go to Tally Student Center that much, just a few times a week to get lunch. And I haven't seen any need for improvement, really. Sean, I'm majoring in computer science. I don't want to pay for it if I'm not going to be using it directly. My name is Patrick. I'm a marine science major. I think that we're spending way too much money on it, and it would be better spent elsewhere. My name is Kimberly Pickford. I'm a zoology major. Uh, I 
literally no idea what this question even refers to. Uh, Caleb Dansky, philosophy major. When it comes to the rally for tally, my personal opinion is that we as a student body should be willing um, to pay the amount of money that is going to be needed for the project. A lot of hay has been made out of this student fee, and student government has been able, and other student leaders has been able to knock the fee down from, I think it was about 400 something dollars to an incremental fee topping off at 290 Do you want to make the investment, take pride in your university, and be able to come back and say, I helped build this, I was there, I took a part in making this university better? My name is Brad Kennedy. I'm the publicity chairman for, uh, chairman for student government. My major is political science and English. This has been Soundbites on Eye on the Triangle. WKNC Raleigh, the revolution.